You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. This is Alf speaking. It's Thursday, the 10th of March, 2022. And I'm here joined today by Imran Laka, who is the founder of Options Insight. How Imran? Hi, Imran. How are you doing? Hey, Alf. How are you? Hey, all good, man. Late for both of us, but let, let's uh, let's get this one started. There is a lot to unpack today as well. So we have equity markets you know, mildly down on the day. We have bond yields staging quite a move, especially in Europe, as the ECB surprised markets on the hawkish side today. We also have, you know, commodities moving all over the place, as always. We've got to get used to that, apparently. And we have Bitcoin repricing down, too. So before we go into each of these asset classes, I want people to know that you are a pretty broad uh, macro asset class guy, although your specifics is options. So can you give us a little bit of an overview from a macro option perspective of how do you see markets today? Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, clearly, you know, the biggest driver right now is the geop geopolitics, right? You know, every headline out of Russia is moving the market by a percent pretty much in equities. So that's the main driver. We, we was obviously had big hawkish shifts out of all the central banks over the past few months. Um, that's repriced massively, you know, the rotation between cyclicals, energy, and then out of tech and things like that. It's been a massive theme. But, you know, you had kind of under the surface, you had things like Europe starting to rally and, you know, potentially the PMIs ticking up in Europe and we were looking for some outperformance in Europe and everyone came in kind of consensus long um, this year looking for Europe to outperform and maybe the US to underperform. And they basically got caught wrong-footed, right? When when this Russia-Ukraine thing happened, Europe just got absolutely trashed. So I think we had the biggest outflow, weekly outflow out of European equities ever last <laughs> week, something like seven billion dollars. Um, and that was that was from a Bank of America sort of data, uh, and that and that just shows you, you know, how wrong-footed everyone got. Um, and then you've had big moves in euro, obviously euro vol typically trades around uh, 6%. That's kind of doubled in the last few weeks um, as euro just smashed back down. I mean, it was starting to look pretty precarious for the euro uh, in that what was happening, potentially throwing Europe into a, a recession, whereas the Fed likely was kind of handcuffed, needing to hike in the face of this these inflationary commodity moves. Um, hence why euro, you know, retested that 108 level earlier this week. Huge level on a technical basis. Um, now they've come out with the idea of euro bonds. They've, they've come out with a bit of a hawkish pivot in the meeting today, and we've had a bounce. But look how quickly it's getting faded, right? So for me, that price action is very telling, and it suggests that the market isn't really believing this hawkish pivot and is saying, you know what, when, if this war drags on, you, you ain't going to be able to do anything, right? So that's, that's what the market's saying. Let's see how it plays out. But yeah, that's the sort of stuff I'm looking at at the moment closely. Yeah. 
And so in your reports, macro insights, and in the work at option insights, you always tend to look, or very often tend to look at the optionality side of things or the volatility side of things, not, not, not necessarily outright moves, right? Whether it's going up or down, but rather play the volatility side, which we're gonna cover a bit later. And you know, I just wanna make sure the audience knows that when you talk about a six ball or a 12 ball or, or you know, these technicalities, we're gonna get a little bit into that because Imran has some, some insights there as well. But now on Europe, because the, there are two news of the day, right? One is the ECB meeting, the other one is the inflation number. Those are the two big news of the day in America. And so let's start from, from Europe first. And so the ECB today came to the wire and um, you know the press conference from Lagarde, but even before the press conference, actually, the monetary policy decisions from the ECB surprised the market from the Yorkish side. They decided to cut the quantitative easing uh, program a bit, you know, shorter than it was supposed to be. So, you know, the estimates are now for it to be ending somewhere in Q3. Might mean July. Might mean September. Uh, which also sets the stage potentially for rate hikes from the ECB earlier than market thought. And so the bond market also moved. How do you interpret this decision making by, by the European Central Bank? And do you think rates market and overall reaction to this to this ECB meeting was accurate? Um, look, I'm looking at the euro to kind of guide me into thinking, you know, what what this means. And, and the euro is telling me that the market's not buying it, basically, right? I mean, clearly, we, we have had a bond market reaction, naturally, um, but I think the jury's out on how aggressive the, the, the Europeans can be. I think the Fed's going to have to be much more aggressive, yeah? Um, but I think, unless we get a really fast resolution of this thing, and we get ceasefire, like, cease proper, you know, de-escalation and ceasefire within the next couple of weeks, and things can get a bit back to normal, and I'm skeptical how fast they can get back to normal, even with that news flow. Um, I think Europe's got, you know, a few struggles ahead of it, basically. And you haven't seen the same wage, you haven't seen the same wage inflation in Europe and stuff like that. So I don't think the pressure is going to be on as much for Europe to tighten as it is for the US. And I think that's going to impact euro and the dollar obviously and taking the dollar higher basically the other important thing obviously imran is that uh one thing is how do we think the fed or the ecb are going to tighten and the other thing is what's the market pricing in today right i mean it's always mm -hmm. like tr trying to trade against consensus whether you're going to beat consensus or not right same for the forward market and so if i look at fed funds future or uh, ois swaps in europe what's priced in for the ecb and the fed to deliver this year for the ecb is round about three hikes basically before the meeting it now got priced to be basically zero percent ecb deposit rate in one year from now by march 2023 and the federal reserve in one year from now is priced to deliver something like 170 180 basis point of hikes which already tells you that the market sort of expects the federal reserve to do more than the ecb yeah. i mean their dry powder is much higher we all know that but it's also about the pace really and the surprises against what the fed funds future and the ois swap surprising in in both markets um, yeah i think that's that's a great point uh, in terms of what the market's pricing i agree with you um the only thing i would say though is you know in this massive world of uncertainty you may get a move back towards that kind of US dollar safety type uh -huh. dynamic, right? Uh, where, and you, you know, look at it from a vol perspective as well, right? As I, as I love to do, right? Eurostox volatility, the main index in Europe, went to 60 in the front end. And whereas, whereas uh, US S&P was at 35, that's a 25 vol differential, which is pretty much unheard of. 
Right, like my subscribers will know I was banging the drum on Monday about that trade, like finding a way to sell European Vol to buy S&P Vol because that spread just wasn't going to stay there, basically. And even if it did stay there, the way it was priced, you had pretty good odds of a vol a relative value volatility trade where you could sell strangles on Europe and buy strangles on S&P and the break-evens just looked fantastic. Hey everyone, we're gonna take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Wait a second, because you said so I've gone, much. I've gone way too far, haven't I? <laughs> You've said so much good stuff. We need to unpack it. Give me a second. So let's start from the very beginning. Eurostox vol and S&P vol. So we moved from the bond market to the equity market, and we're looking for trades that are rather relative value than outright trades. So we are looking for realized volatility to be lower or higher than implied volatility in two different stock markets, the European stock market, the American stock market. And you said something, Imran, the Eurostock's implied vol, volatility, especially at the front end or so short tenors, was pricing in 60% annualized volatility. So unpack that for us. What does it mean on, on an implied so daily so volatility? The easiest way to think about an implied volatility number is it's your market's expectation of how volatile the asset's gonna be up to a specified time period. And then that number is annualized, okay? Now for us, it's easier to think in terms of daily moves than it is in annual moves. So literally all you need to do is take that implied vol number, divide it by the square root of 252, which is roughly 16, right? And that will tell you what the market price is as a daily move for the asset. So a 60 vol asset, is basically being priced to move almost 4% a day, right? A 35 vol asset is being priced to move 2% a day, right? Which is half that amount, okay? So that was, and you know, obviously in the last sort of couple of weeks, we've had Europe underperform quite badly before that massive squeeze that we saw yesterday, whatever it was, but you know, you had about a 10% underperformance in, in about a week from Europe. And my thesis was, if we continue to break down, I don't think the S&P is just going to ignore it, right? The S&P can ignore it for so long, but there comes a point where if the news flow continues to deteriorate, everyone's now switched out of Europe, as we saw from the outflows. They're camped back into US stocks, hoping that they're going to be the safe haven. And then you get that leg down where everyone has to dump what they own, right? Which is the US. So you can have a situation where the European markets get exhausted to the downside and the US market actually sells off. And then that's exactly what went on to happen in those few days where the S&P went from 4,300 to 41.50 lows and Eurostox did nothing and then actually squeezed hard yesterday, right? Like 7% or 8% or something, right? So, so you had, you basically, that, that was, that you could see from the volatility price action that the European sell-off was getting quite exhausted, basically. Yeah, right? and that was the idea. And the other important thing you said is that if you structure the trade in a certain way and you time it right as well, the odds of the trade realizing your way are high. <laughs> so traders like us tend to think in this way, the odds of a trade realizing, which yeah. means it's always a probabilistic assessment. And the, the, you know, the, the way you chose to do this trade is in a relative value term, volatility wise. So you only need 
the European stock market to realize the lower implied volatility compared to what the S&P realizes against their implied volatilities to basically make money out of the trade. So it's, it's, it's a risk measure trade, basically speaking, right? Yeah. And, and well, the thing about options as well is there's multiple ways to implement your view and your idea, right? So for me, like, you know, I saw that vol spread go to 25. So I was like immediately drawn to that and say, okay, European vol is expensive, US vol is cheap. What am I going to do about it? Now, I didn't want to put on that trade and then sit there all day trading the volatility and the realized and literally having to stare in front of my screen all day because that's not what I like to do as a retail trader, right? So what I like to do is put a trade on that I can just put on, take advantage of the dislocation and then leave it and let it breathe, right? So, so the way I implemented the trade was to say, well, <clears throat> the pricing in Europe is such that I can sell a strangle. And what a strangle is, is where you sell an out of the money put and you sell an out of the money call and you hope the market stays inside that range and you get to collect premium. Okay. So the, the strangle that I could sell in Europe was 20% out of the money expiring in a month. So I could sell a 20% out of the money call. I could sell a 20% out of the money put and I could collect premium, okay? With that same premium that I collected, I could then go and buy an S&P strangle, but the strikes that I got on the S&P, because the vol was so much cheaper, were much more like 90% and 110%, as opposed to 80% and 120%. So you get to basically own volatility on the S&P and start making money plus or minus 10%, and you won't lose money on your Eurostox leg until we do 20% either way. So, and the idea was that I can stick that trade on. If the market moves in either direction, I like my odds, right, of getting into a position that is going to go in the money, right? And if the market does nothing, the vol spread can converge. That's exactly what's happened. And the vol spread's gone from 25 back to about 10 now, right? So the money's been made via that compression. If I sit there and do nothing for the next four weeks, I won't make any money because both of the premiums will net each other out. But if I want to take some money out of the trade now, I can because the vol spread has already started to come in. Right? So there's multiple dimensions to trading options where you've got the vol element, you've got the movement in the market element, you've got lots of things that you can play and there's different ways of implementing it and having exposure to those parameters. Fantastic. So this was effectively a zero cost structure mm. option implementation that gives you some decent odds to make money. Or if in this case, they gave you some odds of making money and also makes you sleep at night because you paid basically literally nothing for the trade. So with options, you can play around in a smart way. And Imran is a specialist in that. Imran, I also know that you look at crypto volatility mm. as well. Again, not outright moves necessarily, but rather volatility of the crypto space. Mm. Can you tell us more about that? Like, I'm really seriously interested because I only scratched the surface on that topic. Yeah, I mean, crypto vol is hot. It's a hot space right now. I mean, I've been in it for about two years. And um, I mean, it, it was a lot of fun to trade, right? The reason being that the asset's so volatile, right? So generally, if you're trading options, <clears throat> you want to trade options on an asset that moves around. And you want the volatility of the asset to move around. And that's crypto's got that in spades, right? Um, obviously, we've had some interesting moves in crypto in the last few days or weeks, right? I mean, it was a risk asset correlated to the NASDAQ for ages. And then all of a sudden, it had a pop on the capital controls with Russia. And then it faded because everyone's nervous about this um, executive order out of Biden, yeah. which turned out to be a nothing done. And then we popped again. But 
but it's very choppy. I don't think he can make his mind up whether it's a risk asset or whether it's some sort of gold, digital gold uh, mm -hmm. proxy, right? And I think the market's trying to figure that out as well. I mean, there were some encouraging signs on crypto in terms of the uses, the use cases in an emergency, like Ukraine managed to raise, I think, over $50 million to help them fight the war. Uh, you've got people on the ground in Ukraine using it as a medium exchange, like buy cars and stuff, which I found quite hilarious. Um, and then you've also got the whole angle about it's, you know, criminals going to use it and to circumvent sanctions and stuff. I mean, there's evidence Coinbase finance of freezing accounts of sanctioned people. Mm -hmm. So they can't do anything with their crypto. Now, they may have other crypto that's not on those exchanges. That's like cold storage that they might be able to play yes. around with. But the point is, there are there are some ways to if they're holding on exchange and there's some yeah. ways to monitor it and, and clamp down on that. But but it's but I'm going off on one a bit about crypto use cases. But in terms of the volatility side of things, there's big dislocations in crypto vault. Um, that have kind of come about over the last few months. And whilst the asset still wings around like an animal, um, the, the implied volatility kind of trades systematically cheap at the moment, right, in, in the absolute front part of the curve, which is where you can get exposure to realized vol, because you can the Greek that you buy is gamma to get exposure to realized vol, and that comes from super short-dated options. So you've got a dynamic in crypto markets where you've got this new player that has entered the space which is the DeFi option vaults. And they are basically a retail product of sorts that encourages people in the DeFi world to lock up their coins mm. and earn yield by selling either covered calls or selling puts against stable coin collateral, basically. Okay, so it's a vol selling yield hunting exercise. Yeah. And it's wrapped up within this product that is then the guy just puts it in the vault and forgets about it and just earns their yield. They don't have to like do any of the option trading themselves, basically. But what it does, it's attracted so much capital, and I think it's going to attract a ton more. I think it's early days. But it's attracted so much capital that there is this natural now supply. There's indiscriminate supply. It doesn't care really where the implied volatility is. They just sell it every week, right? So that is a gamma supply that's hitting the street every week making crypto gamma basically too cheap, cheap, right? So if you have events like what's going on in the world right now, you can pick up on a Friday morning, you can pick up some pretty cheap crypto vol if you fancy a move, basically. And that, that's the kind of stuff I've been doing, right? I've been, I've been leaning on that flow. I've been picking it up when I wanted some gamma and things like that. And it's, it's quite nice, as in it's quite a nice trade to kind of game around that because it's predictable flow, right? And being an ex-banker, that was part of my skill set, right? If I've got a predictable flow that I know is coming every week, how do I play against that? How do I, you know, trade against that, preposition for it, take advantage of it, things like that. So those are the type of trades I've been doing and, and I've been telling my subscribers about and, you know, kind of guiding them through whole, that whole uh, mentality, basically. Imran, that's super interesting. I have to admit, I didn't know much of what you just said, but I learned a lot. I have a, a more direct question, which is, um, where is implied volatility for our audience in Bitcoin at the moment, for example? So it's around short... 70, it's around 70, 75. Yeah. Okay. So, so you that's... divide that by 16 again. Well, no, you don't actually. You divide it by 19 because it's open seven days a week. That's a very fair remark. Exactly. Yeah. So you divide it by 19, yeah, which means it's... that the market is pricing Bitcoin to have daily moves of around about 4%, 3.5%, something like that. Something like yep. that, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's right now the um, the forty thousand uh, is around seventy two vol, basically. Yeah. 
Interesting. So um, also in crypto, you can apply these strategies that Imran is talking about. And actually, it makes it even more interesting because, as he just described, there is effectively a systematic uh, volatility selling program from uh, yield enhancing uh, Bitcoin programs or coins programs, right? That they tend to sell volatility indiscriminately, systematically to the market, which makes it even more interesting. Um, Imran, as we are talking about Bitcoin, I, I think our audience will be interested to hear the piece that an interview that Ash did with Chris Perkins and Chris Giancarlo on uh, on Bitcoin and on the discussions we are having. And I want to pick your brain as well on the basically the central banking attempt at creating replication for um, digital assets, in this case, CBDCs. Mm -hmm. And so let's hear to what, uh, what Chris Perkins and Chris Giancarlo had to discuss with Ash Bennington. Most of the world's central banks, including our own Federal Reserve, are eventually going to experiment with their own form of sovereign digital money, a digital dollar, central bank digital currency, and having to try to play an influence as to what that looks like, because I'm very concerned that it, that it must reflect the values of a free society if it's going to be successful and if it's going to serve that free society. So the answer is I'm using my time now engaged in in the, the, the world of ideas, the, the battle for the future, of, I, in my book, I call it the future, uh, the fight for the future of money. What, what is the future of money and banking and, and, and all that comes out of it? We're, we're looking at what's going on in Europe right now, talking about the role of dollars in sanctions power. You know, there's so much that comes away, you know, once you, if you change finance and banking and money, that has sociological impacts. It has geopolitical impacts. That has issues of, of you know, uh, protecting our, our least successful, our, our least well-off in this world. So the, 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 the ideas that go into the future of money, the evolution of that future is where, where my heart, where my mind is right now. And so the full interview is available at the Real Vision Crypto tier for people interested in listening more about that. But Imran, also your opinion on the central bank's attempt, moving for a second aside from, from the technical side of implied volatility of Bitcoin. Let's talk mm -hmm. for a second about its the attempt from central banks to create CBDCs and what this might mean for the whole digital asset space. Do you have an opinion about that? Well, I mean, I have, I have an opinion about central bank digital currencies in that they scare the shit out of me, um, <laughs> if I'm allowed to say that. Sure. Um, but basically, you know, the amount of control that it gives the government um, and to surveil everything you do with your money, um, I don't know, your money can maybe even expire, they can tax different people at different rates to incentivize behaviors. I mean, it scares the hell out of me, right? Um, and I think... But crypto isn't that, right? The crypt, if anything, and you know, Raoul put out a good piece years ago about this, the life raft, right? Mm -hmm. He's saying that crypto is like this life, life raft away from that future because that is going to be your only version of anonymous cash, right? If you can, you know, that you currently can use cash and give it to anyone and no one will know, um, you can't do that with CBDCs, right? So, if Bitcoin's your only way of doing that, there's a place for it in the world, right? And everyone's going to want to have some, I suspect, right? Or a lot of people are. So I don't think CBDCs are a threat to... I think they will encourage more people to want to use things like Bitcoin, personally. 
Yeah, so the, C the CBDC side is a definitely a monetary policy slash policy making um, tool, I think, although disguised as we want to bank the unbanks, uh, unbanked and whatever, you know, a slogan is out there. It's definitely a way to make sure that monetary policy can be stretched to the point where if there are physical limit physical cash limitations to where interest rates can go with a mm. fully virtual and perhaps more centrally controlled CBDC version of the already existing digital uh, money that we have so digital bank deposits if yeah. you make it also if you make the supply of credit of these digital bank deposits being almost fully controlled by a central policymaker it can also apply different tax rates different monetary policy regimes etc mm. etc which you know makes moves the whole central planning monetary policy to a whole different level to be honest yeah. and the point the gentleman made about you know it needs to be you need to consider people's freedoms and things like that right i mean just look at covid right different countries have treated covid so differently right well what have they done in australia relative to what they've done in the us or the uk mm -hmm. uk's dropped all restrictions right now can you go can you go to a restaurant in France without showing a vaccine pass right now? I don't think you can, right? No, in the UK not. you can do what the hell you want. So how different countries are going to use their own CBDCs and the amount of freedom and the amount of rights people are going to have are going to differ greatly, right? Because we've seen that in this last issue that the world has had to deal with for the last few years, right? We're going to take another quick break to hear words from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Fair point. So let's move away again from the philosophical side of things back into the action, because in in at your I mean in your reports at Options Insider and Macro Insights, you also talk about actionable trade ideas, which I love as a former risk taker, and I do the same as well at the Macro Compass. So can you tell us what what would be your top pick at the moment as a trade? Right, top picks, top picks. Um, like I said, the one that I did on Monday was this kind of RV trade between Eurostoxx, Vol, and S&P. So that was kind of my top pick this week. Um, trades that I've been running, I've had some short-dated Bitcoin uh, straddles, 42,000 mm -hmm. straddles. Like I said, that gamma trade systematically cheap. So I was buying one-week straddles and selling one month, like April strangles against it to get some time decay back. So the idea was the market's going to kind of move away from 42,000. And, but once it does, the implied volatility in April isn't going to budge very much because it's already at 75 or whatever, right? So the idea is that you're going to get your move, your straddle is going to make money, but the implied vol short that you've got in April isn't going to hurt you. So that's like, again, quite a complex vol trade, which, you know. Wait a second. Let's stop there. Let, let's analyze it for a second. So right. that's a very interesting one. So effectively, you were saying short term in a very short period yes, I believe, one week one just week. one week i believe that the implied volatility priced by the market is too low so, yeah, I, so think I think that... the break even on my straddle is is too low so the yeah. market can easily move through those break evens yeah so we're going to have some volatile moves which are not priced in over the next 
week or so, right? So, but to buy that uh, that optionality, it's pretty expensive, right? So you have to yeah. effectively pay premium both sides to do, to do that, right? So yeah. then what you did is you sold some optionality yeah. more long dated. So you said, yeah. once we have this boom in the short term, it's going to all come back in terms of volatility, right? Is that a correct assessment? Well, when it's not about like this. Again, this is a mistake a lot of people make in terms of when they think about option positions and calendar positions, taking different expiry positions at the same time. So when you do that, you're not taking a view about the path the market's going to take in a week and then later in the next month, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're just taking a view on the path of all of those options today. How are they going to move relative to each other, yeah. right? So, so the one-week straddle is a simple trade, right? It costs a certain amount. The market either moves by that amount or it doesn't, right? Yes. If it stays at 42,000, you make nothing. You lose the entire premium of that straddle. If mm -hmm. it moves by 3,000 points, you get your money back because that was the break-even of the straddle. Yeah. Okay, if it moves by 5,000 points, then you make loads of money. You, you make 2,000 off that, right? So that's a break-even trade, right? The April, on the other hand, is more of a Vega trade, right? So the idea is you're selling that, you're selling it delta neutral, right? So it, you're selling out of the money options expiring in like six weeks or whatever it is, okay? End of, end of April, so a bit more than that, nearly two months. But what you're saying is that whilst if the market moves, my weekly straddle will go in the money and make me money. But the damage that I'm going to take on my short two-month strangle will be limited mm -hmm. because that implied volatility won't go against me too badly because it's already priced at 75, yeah. right? So I suspect the market won't reprice that too dramatically. That's the point. And in the meantime, if the market doesn't move, that vol could go lower and that thing earns me some time decay to help finance the weekly straddle that I'm along, basically, right? So that, that's the argument, right? A proper options teacher, Imran. <laughs> really great. Now, we have a question from the audience, a couple of those. Before we wrap up, I would like the audience to get uh, at least one occasion to ask you a question. So Ryan from, from the Real Vision website. He's asking something about implied volatility and historical volatility, using your expertise in options clearly. So mm -hmm. he says, there is IV, HV, and the ratio of IV and HV, so implied vol and historical vol. What yeah. are your thoughts on implied volatility, historical volatility, sometimes referred to on the street as volatility premium? What mm -hmm. are your thoughts on the ratio between implied vol yeah, and so, historical so vol? System, systematically, there should be a vol premium, right? Because it's a lot easier to sleep at night being long vol than it is short vol. Yeah. So there is a premium typically to harvest. And that is a systematic alpha that vol traders have traded from the beginning of options because implied typically trades above realized, right? Because people are willing to pay for that, that protection, that, that tail risk, whatever it may be. Okay. It's like an insurance premium. You could kind of think of it as, okay. It's just that sometimes that spread can move around because you get a load of movement and yet people don't think that movement's going to persist. So they don't reprice the implies up too much. They're like, that's an anomaly that's going to settle down and the implies stay low. And if you, for whatever reason, think that, in, that the market's going to keep moving, then there's your opportunity because you get to buy that implied below realized, which is quite rare. Okay, But over the long term and the majority of the time, there will be a premium. Okay, And then it's quite a good question for now because at the moment, um, and I put out a tweet about this the other day about commodities and um, tracking some of the major commodities like wheat, oil, 
copper, gold, right? And all their implies have obviously exploded as they've started moving. And um, but a lot of them are trading. The implies are trading almost two hundred, like two hundred percent of the realized vol. If you measure the historic vol and you look at the implied, it's almost double. That's a very high implied vol premium, which would make you, you know, you just look at that blindly and say, well, vol's way too expensive. Okay. But what that historic vol number doesn't take into account is intraday moves, right? It only takes into account the close to close volatility. And if you look at things like oil, things like wheat, things like nickel, right? I mean, the intraday vol was like insane. I mean, even on the S&P, I was looking at it today, right? A good measure of the intraday vol is the ATR, the, the average true range. And the average true range on the S&P, if you look at 14 days, is like 105, which is like 2.5%. If you look at the realized vol, it's more like 25, 28%, something like that. So you've got a big differential between what the ATR vol would be, which is in the 40s or around 40, whereas the close-to-close vol is like 28, right? And then the VIX is sitting somewhere in the middle in the sort of low 30s, basically, mm-hmm. mid to low 30s. So, so that's why the VIX is trading a bit higher than realized, because the guys who do own Gamma are able to monetize these swings, right? These intraday swings, they can trade them and they can capture that movement. And the guys who are short Gamma are getting chopped about by that movement, right? And they don't like that, hence they're going to bid that vol back and they're not going to be comfortable shorting it so much, right? So people who are looking for, you know, again, I'm getting quite technical here, but people who are looking for this Vanna rally that we often get in markets where vol comes down, put premiums get crushed, Deltas, uh, dealers have to buy back all the delta hedges against it. It's called, they call it a Vanna rally, right? And that's reliant on implied vols collapsing, okay? Yeah. But if the market's so volatile intraday right now to the level that they are compared to where vol is, I think we're going to need a bit of time and a bit of stabilization of intraday vol before you get a significant enough collapse in volatility to fuel a real Vanna rally that takes us back to 4,400 and beyond, basically. Right. Wow, what an answer. I just have a backup question, which is not from the audience, it's from myself, but I guess it helps the audience as well. You basically uh, went and say there is some alpha trades in options, but you made sure to say alpha trades in options. Yeah. So um, can, you, can you tell us why uh, you know, that remark about alpha trades in options? What are, what are traders doing where they're trying to monetize the difference between implied vol and historical vol? Well, well, it's just a buzzword, isn't it, right? Alpha. Everyone, everyone wants to generate alpha. That's what, that's what differentiates you in the markets these days, right? Like, just, just, just having beta to the market doesn't, doesn't make you stand out. You have to outperform. You have to generate alpha, right? And so that's why I had it in inverted commas. But, you know, systematically selling vol tends to be an alpha generating strategy right? over time because vol usually trades expensive. Problem is when you're going in this massive volatility regime shift that we've gone through this year and we've had multiple reasons behind it, right? That is not a good strategy, systematically selling vol anymore. Okay. Yeah. And anyone who thinks it is, is like smoking something basically. Right. Yes. So, so I, I would say actually, Buying dips in vol this year is probably a better trade. I think looking at the VIX, it was floored at 15 last year. Mm-hmm. I think the floor is jacked up at least five, if not 10 vols this year. Wow. Right? Certainly for the first half of the year, while we got all this Ukraine stuff happening, we're tightening into a slowdown, arguably, all, all, all hell could break loose, right? I mean, 
looking at some of the stuff Darius says, and I'm a big fan of Darius Dale, 42 Macro, you know, we could arguably see a 30 to 50% sell-off in equities, right? So don't think the VIX is going sub-20 in that world, right? So, so I would say the new floor in VIX is probably around 20, maybe even slightly higher, and, and probably buying dips in it makes sense, right? And if you're going to buy the dip in the market, which I, I'll be honest, I've been trying to do for like a month now, <clears throat> but I've been doing it safely. And you have to do it via call spreads, maybe call flies, those type of structures where you can spend a bit of premium, make three to five times that premium if you get the rally, but if you sell off and you're protected, basically, you only lose your premium, right? That's the only way to buy these dips right now. Imran, just to top it off, I think you are amongst the best guys out there when it comes to teaching options to retail, re retail guys want to learn you have skin on hands-on experience in that you're a great uh, communicator as well and a great teacher uh, in case people want to find more about you where can they do that sure so um options underscore insight um is my um twitter handle um i'm pretty active on there tweeting sort of daily tweet threads about cross-asset stuff and volatility um, you can visit my website, which is uh, options-insight.com. Um, we offer online options courses. We offer live uh, boot camps where we teach options. In fact, we've got one coming up on the 26th and 27th of March weekend. Um, so that's a virtual Zoom course where I recruit, enroll people and, and teach them all my options stuff. Um, and then we have the, our subscription service, which is Macro Insight, which is kind of the hand-holding service. Like I always say to people, I can teach you everything about options in two days, but that doesn't make you an options trader, right? You have to kind of practice it. You have to actually implement positions and feel them and feel the P&L and live and breathe it and bounce ideas off people and stuff like that. And that's what Macro Insight allows you to do. You can, it's my subscription. You have access to me once a week on a, on a Zoom call. Yeah, we have a disc, Discord server where you can access me real time. Uh, and yeah, we're growing a nice little community in there, so. Well, guys, Imran, I think has proved himself and thanks for being here today, Imran, on Pleasure. the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Ash, guys, will be back tomorrow with Raul himself. So something you can't really miss, you don't wanna miss that. And uh, something else to add is that Real Vision is hiring. So as you're a viewer and a listener, maybe you wanna check out and uh, go work with Real Vision, you can check them out on their website. I will uh, see you guys uh, somewhere over the next few weeks. Thank you, Imran, again for being here today. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure, mate. Thanks a lot. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com